Hey, listeners, so happy to have you with us wherever you are in the world. Uh, Notice last time on the stats, we've got a whole bunch of people in Germany. I'm so excited about that. I have a little bit of um, that heritage, European heritage, and so does my guest, I'm pretty sure. Uh, And I'm very excited for you to get to know her today. This is going to be such a treat. I'm so happy for you. Uh, This woman is a true family woman. And I think we need that phrase in our vernacular. Um, We have the phrase, a true family man, when we talk about you know, men who prioritize home and family, but we also have women that are really prioritizing home and family. And we have a classic example of that today. This family woman has five children. She has two children uh, with her husband and then three from her husband's previous marriage. She loves her family and she also happens to be extremely famous Um, You probably have heard of her. If not, you can Google her because it would take longer than you have time um, for me to (laughs) go through all the many things that Jane has accomplished in her life. Uh, But suffice it to say that Jane is a former broadcaster. Um, She was with the early show on CBS for 15 years, I think. Is that right, Jane? 15 years? Well, I hosted the morning program on CBS for three years. I was um, at CBS for five years. I was at ABC News as a correspondent um, for several more years. And then in um, local news uh, at KSL Television in Salt Lake City and now at National Public Radio in Boston. So, Wow. Okay. Somewhere in there, some of those things add up to 15 probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's early, you guys, but but she's in there. Anyway, she's been a broadcaster for a long time, has done that. Uh, And I, I just am so um, happy to have done some research on her. She's interviewed, gosh, iconic figures like Martha Stewart and um, entertainment figures. She's done interview political figures and she was there for 9-11, which I think is really, really powerful because there were a lot of us that I think if you're listening, listener, and you were there uh, for 9-11, were really terrified and to have comforting media voices there. Um, So Jane, this is, this is exciting. I just want to talk about a few things uh, that Jane has done that involved a lot of courage. And then I'm going to ask her some specific questions about that. One of those things is that Jane wrote a book after her broadcasting season. I think it was after, right, Jane? Or was it while you were still broadcasting, you wrote the book, I Am a Mother? Uh, I had left CBS um, in New York after several years um, and many years in journalism. And I had um, met my husband and I had decided that I was going to um, have a family and so I made the choice um, to to leave New York to leave my career I had a another offer on the table from ABC to go back to ABC where I'd previously worked at the network level and just decided that I um, I wanted to make a, a choice in that moment, and and I had the ability to do that. Um, I know not everyone does, and I was grateful for that experience over many years and wanted to um, choose motherhood and choose my family, and so I did that. And so, so impressive. I remember being a young mom and being in a bookstore and looking up, it was like on the higher shelf in the bookstore. And I was looking up because I'd just been looking down at all these little, don't touch that, please wait, come over here. No, 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 don't, don't. And then I looked up, <laughs> and I, you know, because they're little ankle biters. And I, and I looked up and I saw your book and I just thought, 
I need this book. It, it was called I Am a Mother. And I thought, so am I. And I could just, that classic on the cover, there's a shoe with a little girl trying to, like a mom's shoe, trying to fill that shoe. And I just, it just touched me. And I, I bought it and I read it and I thought, this is what I need. This fills my soul because I need to be reminded. Sometimes moms feel, I think, a little isolated. And I needed that book to remind me of the importance of home and family, whatever path that looks like for each individual person. That's of course their own decision, but just the prioritizing of the role. And you spoke to that in a time where I think it wasn't um, as revered as, you know, it has been in the past. And so I thought it was courageous of you to write that book. And and it was beautiful. Thank you so much for writing. Oh, well, thank you, Mary. I, I, I really appreciate it. You know, I, after having had a career where I, you know, as we do is, um, you know, kind of in a professional sense, we often get patted on the back for job well done and lots of praise. And here's an award for this or that. And um, here's, you know, let's elevate you to a new position. I, I realized pretty quickly that motherhood was very different. And you're in the slog of raising little children and one day bleeds into the next and you haven't taken a shower and you're in your sweats, you know, for day three or whatever it is. And I just realized that, you know, moms don't get a lot of praise. And I heard more often than not women saying, you know, when they asked, when, when they were asked what they did in their lives, they said, Oh, I'm just a mom. You know, I don't, I don't have a career right now or I'm not working. I'm just a mom. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, what? <laughs> what? You are a mother. We, yes. you know, I'm a mother. Yes. You are a mother. We are doing important, valuable work. And so, yeah. Yeah. no, we don't get a paycheck. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's really, really hard work for years on end without much recognition or notice. But we are mothers. I'm a mother. You are a mother. And in some ways, we're all mothers, you know, looking out for each other's kids, even if we don't have biological children of our own. There are lots of ways to mother, but to denigrate or to diminish the role of a mother, I think, diminishes diminishes all women. And so I wanted to lift that role up and be able to say, no, we are doing important work here. I love it. I love it so much. I can remember going outside on my porch sometimes with little tiny kids and I just, you know, I have a little older one watch for a minute and I go outside and I just say, I look at the sky and I just say, angels, do you see what I'm doing in here? Do you see that I'm not yelling right now? I mean, no one else is here to witness that I'm not. <laughs> yes. yeah. I, I mean, I just want to just, you know, a little, little quiet, maybe internal praise from you guys because I'm trying so hard. And it yeah. is moms in those silent, quiet moments at home that are building our nation, that are building our world. And they do yeah. more than they get. And your book is a, a shout out to that. It was yeah, so beautiful. Well, thank you. <clears throat> and it's not to suggest that, you know, every path, as you said, you know, every woman has their own path and they have to make their own decision based on their own circumstances and their own desire, you know, but um, we need to value that role. And it looks different for different women, but the role of mothering is the most important work we'll ever do, regardless of the titles and, um, you know, the praises of the world, what we do within the walls of our home is incredibly important. I totally agree. A hundred percent. I remember reading Pat Holland saying, 
if something to the effect, if you wanted, if, if I were Satan and wanted to go after something in the world to, to change it for ill, I would go after women and their roles. And so we need, we need people on the other side, pushing back and saying this, no, wait a second, hold on. This is actually fabulous. Let's, let's do this. Let's prioritize. Let's revere it. Let's revere and honor this sacred and beautiful role. Uh, Jane, you went on to write a second book and the book was called silent souls weeping. And that, is another to me ex- example of courage. It took courage to write a book prioritizing uh, motherhood in a time where it wasn't as well revered as it has been. And then it took courage to write a book on depression when a number of years ago, it wasn't as um, well understood as it is now. And it's still in progress. It's still an evolution, right? But to yeah. take it on, you know, really you were a pioneer in that. So tell us about how you decided to write that book. Well, um, thank you for the the question and I, you know, it was, I, it was difficult. I mean, there's no other way around it. I, I'll, I'll start by giving the short answer, which is I had a bout of clinical depression hit me when I was a, a young mom and I didn't really know what was happening to me because I had never experienced anything like it before. I had had, you know, the ups and downs of life, but mm-hmm. nothing that would flatten me, nothing that a good cry, you know, or two or three wouldn't get me out of. But mm-hmm. clinical depression was different. And I had gone through an early menopause at at uh, 39. Oh my and, wow. and it just, it just sent my body reeling into a really difficult, dark place. Mm-hmm. And I I started, um, you know, thinking that my husband needed a, a different wife, that my children certainly could use a better mother. You know, I just was, it felt like I was, had been thrown into a, a dark cave and it was cold and and no one else was around. And the longer I was in there, the worse it got. And I didn't talk about it because I was so embarrassed because I had this, sure. these, sure. this life that I'd always wanted, you know, these little <laughs> children. And, yeah, uh, you know, I had a supportive husband and yes, all yes. the things, you know, and yet I was really, really struggling. And I started fantasizing about my own funeral and who would speak and the flowers around the church and um, being buried under a massive willow tree. I mean, just really, just really dark stuff. And to say it now, it's just say, Jane, that you are detail oriented, even in this situation, (laughs) like you were a planner, (laughs) you were organized, you were ready. (laughs) Oh, I had my list, Mary. I had my list. You had your list. You were yeah, ready. Yeah, Got the hands ready. <laughs> anyway, yeah. keep going. Keep going. No, but, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it was it was a serious thing, and I'm glad I can laugh about it now. But at the time, I was I really it was really awful. And finally, on a Sunday, I drove off and just said, "That's it." You know, I'm I'm. I really thought that that, you know, was going to be the end. And I tell this story in the first chapter of my book um, because I want people to know that I get it. And everything that unfolded from that point, really, I believe, um, was a miracle. And when I came out of that depression and got treatment and got talk therapy and got some medication for a time, 
I realized how many people were suffering and how many people suffer in silence. They feel shame. They don't want to talk about it, you know, like me, like very similar to my situation. And, you know, over lunches with friends, stories started to come out. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. I, I've got to share this. I've got to, I've got a platform. I've got to use it. Yes. And so I called my publisher, Desiree Book, and I just said, my longtime editor, I said, I, I want to write a book on depression. And, and the other end of the line went silent. And <laughs> I had to think about uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I told her what I wanted to do. I wanted to make it a documentary style book. Like I know how to write documentaries for television. I want to write a documentary in a book form and I want to tell people's stories. And so they said yes. And so for the next three years, I just started interviewing people all across the country, all who'd had experiences with depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses. And I, at the end of it, had a massive iCloud full of stories and interviews and just essentially drew a line through what I heard and wrote chapters around the experiences of postpartum depression, of suicide of um, missionaries, um, you know, service missionaries who come home early because of mental health struggles. There's a, an important chapter on perfectionism and how perfectionism leads to um, depression. And there's a chapter for people who don't experience depression, but who live with or love someone who does. That's a really hard place to be. That's my husband, you know, and so I interviewed him for my book. And so it was just a, an exercise for me, a very cathartic um, experience to hear these stories and for the people I interviewed to tell their stories because everyone I interviewed talked about when they shared their experience, it helped not only themselves, but it helped someone else around them understand their experience and then try to help and reach out to someone else who is suffering. I love this so, so much. You know, I used to say, okay, I'll back up for a second. Um, sometimes we have dinners and there'd be like a dessert. And when you have a whole bunch of little kids and you know, they're going to try to eat those cookies for breakfast the next day. So I'd quit take the cookies or whatever. And, and my kids tease me about this, but I'd like open the pantry and put them on a shelf where they couldn't quite see them. And then of course I would forget about it. And then we pull them out. I don't even want to think later. And it was not a good situation. Um, we could cure strep throat with that plate of cookies. So I would throw away. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think of it like that sort of like what you're saying is sometimes you know, historically people have just difficult emotions, sadness, deep depression, all of these things they're ashamed of. They just sort of shove in the back of that pantry and right. it gets worse. It just gets worse. But when we right. pull it out into the light and say, Hey, you know what? We're all have some version of something. I mean, sometimes, and if you have it more severely, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk, let's talk to each other. That is such a beautiful gift you have given the world, Jane, to give people permission not to have stigma around this and to connect. Connection right. is key, right? That's, That's right. Connection is key. And you know, yeah. the number one theme in all the interviews that I did, Mary, was stigma and this shame associated with having a mental illness, right? I mean, we have no shame about going to the doctor if we have a thyroid condition or we broke our arm, we get a cast and yeah. we get, or we have, you know, heart yes. condition or cancer, we get treatment and we get better. Yeah. But 
you know, mental illness is no different. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget a woman I interviewed who said, you know, I wish I could wear a cast on my head, just like I wear a cast on my arm when I get it set after it's broken. You know, something is broken in there and it's very hard for people to understand that. So the more we talk about it, the more we bring it out into the open, the more we can have little conversations of trust with people that we love and who love us. Yes. We can name it to yes. tame it. We yes. can name it. We can put a name to it and we can say, this is what is happening to me right now. And yeah. then we try to get help to make it better. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's And you talk about the concept of brain health. And I think right. that's a beautiful way to explain that. We need healthy bodies and we need healthy brains. And let's right. do what we can to help those brains be healthier. Um, what role do you think toxic, I'm going to coin another phrase, toxic comparison plays in this. Because one of the things I've noticed in the, in when I've read about this or learned about this, um, is there's a feeling, it's sort of a black and white thinking, like everyone has it together. I don't, do you notice that pattern a little bit? Right. Well, I called it toxic perfectionism in my book. And there's actually a study that I found, um, that linked toxic perfectionism to depression and to suicide in some cases. Um, In fact, in the study, it it said, I don't have it in front of me, but to pull it out of my memory, it said um, depression plus toxic perfectionism is a loaded gun. And, you know, for some people, that's that's enough to push them over the edge. And, you know, social media doesn't help. We live in this world today where you yeah. just go online and it takes about 10 seconds to think how much you know worse your life is than everybody else around yeah. you who yeah. has the perfect looking yeah. children and yeah. has the fun vacations and does the things that you don't do and yeah. woe is me and it's very hard you know so we live in a toxic perfectionistic culture i think yeah. in many ways yeah. and so i wrote about that thinking that we've got a tear down those walls and get people to start being real with each other and not these glossy, um, you know, sort of prepared images that we want everyone to see. I actually included a story in the book about an art therapy program that I did with my, my daughter who suffers with very severe anxiety and depression. And I'll tell you this story very quickly, Mary, we went into this um, art therapy class one afternoon and the psychologist rolled in a box, uh, just a bunch of boxes, like shoe boxes, little boxes and a stack of magazines Mm -hmm. and scissors and tape. And she gave us an assignment. She had us clip out pictures and word descriptions of who we are on the inside like who we are when the lights are out, nobody's watching, right? And we were supposed to tape all of those pictures and word descriptions on the inside of the box. And on the outside of the box, we were supposed to tape pictures and word descriptions of how we present ourselves, who we want others to see us as. That was our image, right? Yeah. And so we did that. And after an hour, it was very clear what the moral of the story was or the lesson was in this. And she wrote it on the board. She said, the more alike the outside and the inside of your box, the better your mental health. I love that, that to me, that to me is the perfect example of why toxic perfectionism is so dangerous. Like when we are living um, 
a life that is not authentic and is not the same as who we are on the inside, yeah. right? It's yeah. dangerous and it's um, it's potentially very damaging um, to who we are. And so the more alike we are on the inside <laughs> than we are on the outside, how we present ourselves, the better off we'll be. The better off we are. Because isn't that, I mean, that's beautiful because it's the honest thing. The right. honest truth is none of us are this high bar of impossible perfection. Never is this going to happen in this life. We're never going to be that. No matter how right. hard we try, we are never going to be what in our minds we think we should or could or would or whatever we're tempted to think in our minds. It's never going to happen. That's a lie. But it's also true that we're not the worst and the most awful thing that ever happened either. We're a work in progress. Every single right. is just on the road. So I love that authenticity of be who we really are. It's okay. It's a journey, right? It's a journey. Yeah. And yeah. everybody's journey is different. I mean, you think, a, you think it's like a straight line, like, oh, I'm yeah. going to start here and I'm going to end there. No, yeah. Yeah. the line is, is. Um, goes in circles and sometimes it goes way outside the box and sometimes it has to come back in and then we move forward a few steps and then it takes another turn, you know? Exactly. It's exactly. And I love that phrase. We're all just walking each other home through these complicated yeah. roads. And it's, and it's fun to hold hands while we walk because it's much easier when we're connected to, to walk that journey that you're talking about and to walk that path. And that's key. Um, all right, sweetie, I want to ask you one more question. I know you've got things and we're going to close in a minute, but I want to uh, maybe give our listeners some ideas. So here's what I'm thinking about. What if, okay, so if we're talking about the concept of brain health and maybe if we thought of it like maybe depression full on is like a full-blown migraine. But what I've been told about migraines is that if you can catch it early, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes there are things you can do to help it from going from a headache to a full-grown migraine. So let's say someone has struggled with depression and maybe they're in a pretty good place, but maybe there's a little bit of a niggling feeling like, oh, you know what, that dark cloud, I can kind of feel like getting closer. Are there things, or maybe there aren't, but if I'd love to know what you think, things that might help to not move into that direction that might, you might have some autonomy around. What do you think? Well, um, I get migraines, so I totally understand the metaphor <laughs> and you're yeah. exactly right. Right. Yeah. Catching it early. Sometimes you can, you know, kind of head it off at the past. Sometimes you can't, but sometimes yeah. you can. Yeah. I, I would just say first thing, to be honest, and I think women really struggle with this, especially because we're always putting everybody else first. But I have learned in my life that Here's ready. Here's here's write this down. Self care, <laughs> self care is not selfish. Yeah. It is essential. Self care is not selfish. It is essential. So I I try very hard to have a little routine for myself. I try to work out. Um, I try to every day, and sometimes that means. Let's all the time I have is to walk around the block for five minutes. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's a healthy workout at a gym or, you know, on a treadmill or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, and it means eating right. It means feeding my body uh, what it needs to, to function properly. It means uh, sleeping enough. It means, you know, just doing the basic things. And then on top of that, finding joy every day in something that I want to do. Not something my husband wants to do, not something my kids are nagging me to do, something I want to do, right? And 
you know, maybe that's reading a book. Maybe that's doing a little stitchery project. Maybe that's, you know, going to lunch with a friend. Maybe it's talking on the phone with someone for 30, for, you know, 30 seconds or two minutes because it's all I have time for, but it's something and I'm going to make sure that I do it. So that, those things are really important to me now. And they weren't (laughs) early on. Um, The other thing I would say is that if you're feeling the dark cloud coming and you feel different, like for me, depression was very physical, you know, I mean, I just felt it in every cell of my body. And I just, I just, it was like walking through mud. I couldn't function. I was like looking through gauze, you know, my, everything was slow. Every move was slow. Every word was slow. I just felt, um, just beaten down. And you know, the earlier you can talk to a doctor about this, the more, um, the more benefit, you know, you can, um, get from treatment, right? I'll never forget the story of a woman I interviewed who, um, was in college, excuse me, and she was diagnosed with anxiety and depression and a very serious case of it, actually. But she was embarrassed because she had some family history and she thought, oh, all those, you know, crazy people in my family, I'm not going to be like them. Mm-hmm. But you know what? There are a lot of genetic components to this, Mary. And, I believe it. Yeah. And she went to the doctor. The doctor gave her some medication. She flushed it down the toilet. She said, I'm going to buck up. I'm going to take care of this on my own. Mm-hmm. And she had some she had a lot of difficult years. And finally, after her third baby was born, she just said, I can't do this anymore. She talked to her doctor. She got help. She um, started realizing that, you know, treatment works. Talk therapy works. Medication can have an impact, you know, and sometimes you got to try different medications. And um, the first one you get isn't always the one that you're going to end up with. But um, the earlier you can step in and have courage, back to your first question, have courage Mm -hmm. to talk with someone and to open up, um, the better off you will be. I love that. I love that. Pull it out of the pantry, guys. Get out there. Do what Jane says. Remember that self-care is not selfish. It's essential. That is such a bumper sticker hashtag right there, Jane. I love it. <laughs> Last question on this before we go. What do you think of just, it's on my mind this morning because I've been listening to that. I'm sure you do too. Um, listeners, you know, we're LDS and there's this come follow me broadcast. You don't have to be LDS to listen to it. Um, it has some beautiful things. Hank Smith and John, by the way, that's one of my favorite uh, episodes or, or productions that is done around this come follow me concept, but they were talking about the power of music and they were talking about David um, in the old Testament and different people that sometimes they were down and sad and they would ask people to come in and play for them. I've noticed I, I haven't had clinical depression, but I certainly had sad and really difficult, really challenging times. Um, and I, I sometimes just find these songs that just, just, you know, just do it for me. <laughs> it just brings yeah. And do you have that? Have you had that experience with music at all? A hundred percent. What a great question and a really important point to bring up. I think the power of music to change our mindset is really profound. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a violinist, actually. I went to college on a violin scholarship and I love to play and I love what music can do to change our perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you're exactly right. I mean, finding music um, that can change your your 
change the 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 sense of being that you have in any particular moment like i and i don't mean like maybe it's a classical music piece maybe i mean for me there's a piece called come thou font of That's every my blessing favorite hymn. oh That's my, my favorite. goodness you should have twin funerals and play that song <laughs> I told my kids, I want that. That's my son. It, it makes me cry. It's, it's so beautiful. It does. It so makes me cry, but it also gives me inspiration in, a, in, yes. a, in, a, in a, an incredible way, you know? So like there are different pieces that you can put on for different moments. But I, but I also will say without shame that, you know what? Put on, ask Siri or ask your phone to play like some dance music and put it on while you're making dinner and dance to, you know, dance in the kitchen. You know, Absolutely. for me, it's a, for me, it's the Bee Gees or, you know, Journey or, <laughs> I mean, I'm an 80s girl, you know, so. I get you. I, mean, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. But, and you know, I mean, maybe it's what, yeah. yes, whatever you like, put it on yeah. and just start dancing. Just start I dancing, you know, it. enjoy so your much. life. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. I love it so much. You know, I'm a fan of near, my kids tease me about this too, but I love to hear about people's near death experiences. And one theme that seems to run through is, gosh, I got to heaven and wow, there was music instantly. There's music everywhere in heaven. And so if we think about that, if we bring that music here, we're going to feel maybe a little more like heaven, the happy Mm -hmm. stuff, the poignant stuff, the sad stuff, the whatever it's, it just breaks us into a new place. It just does. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing all of this. Thank you. Uh, There's a quote I'm just going to close with. Our divine purpose is to be miracles to one another. Jane Clayson Johnson, you look in the mirror sometimes and remember that you have been a miracle to millions of people through the courageously. Listen, we're all miracles to each other, or we can be, and we should be, and find the opportunity every day to be a miracle in someone's life. And if we all had that mantra, and if we all had that um, inspiration to try to do that every single day, wouldn't the world be a better place? And we can all do that, you know, every single day. We can. We can. That's why we're here. Walking each other home and dancing on the way and singing. That's right. <laughs> All right, Jane. We love you. We'll talk. We'll love you too. Again. Take care. Thanks, Steve. Mary. Thank nice. you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, listeners. Bye-bye. We'll see you next time.